Hey friends, it's Corey Andrew Powell here, letting you know it's time to treat yourself with an exclusive Motivational Mondays deal at the NSLS shop. Listeners get 20% off shop-wide with the code MONDAYS. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Need a new coffee tumbler? Or perhaps you want to keep it classy with a new hardcover notebook? Well, get them on sale. Listen, with this deal, I'm tempted to trade in my bow tie collection for one of those cute NSLS hoodies. And don't forget, use code MONDAYS at checkout. That's M-O-N-D-A-Y-S. Enjoy that 20% off at shop.nsls.org. And stay motivated, leaders. Stay motivated. Hello, everyone. I am Corey Andrew Powell, and I'm joined today by Daniela Pierre-Bravo, a best-selling author, public speaker, and MSNBC reporter for Morning Joe. She's also the co-author of Earn It, which she wrote with Morning Joe co-host Mika Brzezinski, and her work's been featured on The Today Show, Telemundo, Forbes, Cosmopolitan, to name a few. But today, we are going to be talking about her new book called The Other... And it's the other, how to own your power at work as a woman of color. Daniela, welcome to Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this conversation. Oh, me too. Me too. So, of course, I read the book. And before I get into the the conversation about the book, I would love for you just to begin by sharing in your own words why you wrote the book. And then we'll get into more about, you know, some more of the details of your personal story. Yeah. So I wrote this book as a follow-up to Earn It, which is a book Mika and I wrote together in 2019. And it was meant to be a book, a playbook for young women starting their career on how to know and grow their value. And Mika decided to put my story on there, the story of uh, being undocumented, growing up in a small town without any mentors, and this kind of crazy bus story that I also write about in this book, which I know you know. And I didn't expect the level of excitement for my story as we were traveling around the country and doing press and meeting people. I would just have women who were um, Black women, Asian women, you know, Latinas, and even women who lived in the middle of Kentucky or North Dakota coming up to me and saying like, I resonated so much with your story. And I knew that there was something there. And it was this kind of, I think I hit a nerve with women who have felt like the other, which is to say they have always seen themselves through the eyes of somebody else. They have always defined their identity and their sense of self through what others want from them. So we're conditioned to appease and accommodate and create ways to not create discomfort for people because we have learned as the others through blatant racism or microaggressions or an instance where we have been told that we are different. We have translated that into not being enough and we have internalized that in shame. And so what happens is we do really well at earning it at the beginning of our career. We are the yes girls. We work hard. We're the first ones, you know, to graduate college in our, in a household, right? So we do really well at the beginning. Everybody, you know, we, we differentiate ourselves because we work really hard. The problem is, is that as we move along in our career, year two, three, four, and beyond, it takes something different from us. So if you, I've, you know, interviewed tons of Fortune 500 CEOs, men and women. And the number one trait that I think defines their ethos is a sense of ease, right? So they walk into a room, they articulate what they need to say, they advocate for themselves with ease. And the problem is for a lot of women like us who have grown up as the other, we come 
to this point where we reckon with our own sense of identity. Because in order to have ease, you have to be comfortable with yourself and you have to know that you're worth it and that you are enough. And so this book is as much of practical advice on, yes, how to negotiate effectively. Yes, how to, you know, push back on microaggressions and all of the practical stuff. But it's also a journey, an introspective journey on how to understand ourselves better and how to reclaim our identity because we have shedded it for psychological safety. And so that is kind of like the heart of the why behind the book. And I'm just really excited to share it. And (laughs) I think I was a little bit too vulnerable in this book. You know, you get to this thing where you're writing the first and second draft of it and you're like, oh, wait, that story is going to be in the book. Oh, wait, that's (laughs) making it in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it's also cathartic though, right? Because I mean, as you're doing it, you sort of, you're, you're almost like reconciling the past at the same time, right? And I think that even things came up that I hadn't fully worked through with my own sense of otherness. And I think I learned a lot from writing this book that I didn't think that I, you know, didn't expect to learn. Mm -hmm. One thing that stands out to me in this book is the bravery, (laughs) the moments of bravery And, you know, there is a story of how you got that internship, you know, that first big internship with Bad Boy (laughs) and just, and what it took for you to get there. And it was very similar to, I mean, I related to that because, you know, I had dreams of going to New York too. And that fearlessness of our youth, I think we lose that as well as we get older, we become a lot more practical. There's more to lose, but, you know, you were so fearless in pursuing that, but you do bring up a good point when we don't show up as our authentic selves, you can't possibly be in the best state of mind to be your most successful. And so what I hear a lot in your book is how people of color specifically, they're grappling with, I don't want to look too ethnic in this environment. I don't hope, hope they don't hear my accent come through. Yeah. Am I too black? As my hair, are these cornrows too urban for, you know, it's right. all these things that we as people of color grapple with. And so to you, you really can't be your, your best self if you're not your most authentic self. Right. And I think for me, you know, I'm very upfront with saying, you know, I'm a white Latina and which is why I incorporated stories of black women, Asian women, different types of others in the book, LGBTQ women, because it was important for me to shed those different layers of otherness. And for me, Yes, I've been the only women in a room. Yes, I've been the youngest in, in, in a, in a room full of men, um, trying to do my job. But I think for me, the most piercing part of being the other was reconciling my worth as somebody who's undocumented, who grew up with blatant prejudice, blatant, you know, signs and messages to this day that I don't belong here. I had the opportunity and I, I wrote about this in the book and I, I kind of have mixed feelings about, you know, my decision to put this in the book, but I was invited back to my hometown, which is a very small conservative town. And, um, you know, it was a good place to grow up in because, you know, I had, I want to say, you know, the people there didn't know I was undocumented. I was in the shadows, which from the start, I felt like I, I needed to hide parts of me because I was the problem. I was the undocumented one. I was a problem. And I didn't have a network of 
other undocumented people that I knew of. So I felt a lot of shame and I couldn't articulate it until I got into the workplace and I started writing about it. But it was, there was this instance in 2019, right after, um, we had uh, done the book with Mika, we had gone through press and it was very well received by audiences that we were in front of. And this women organization from my hometown invited me back and they were like, you know, we'd love to have a conversation about knowing and growing your value messages in your book. And they did an announcement on the local news the day before I was supposed to be there, you know, talking about my story, um, showing pictures of me in high school. And, you know, it's supposed to be like a very um, empowering conversation. That night, I got a really nasty message from, an I like to call them internet trolls. Yes, um, <laughs> that's, that's the term you use in the book. Yes, <laughs> um, and just completely like threw me a new one. Like, you don't belong here. You don't belong in Ohio. You don't belong in this country. You illegal, blah, 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 blah. And I thought I had dealt with that. I had thought that I had like put that to the side and realized my worth. And I think a lot of what I realized is that I had a lot of subconscious kind of um, trouble dealing with my full self and my own past. And it shows up in weird ways when like you want to say something in a meeting and you feel like not smart enough, like you feel like, you know, what you have to say is not good enough. And that is why I connected our own lived experiences as the other. And I have a whole chapter about, you know, identifying where the origin of our otherness came from. Because if we don't understand where our self-limiting beliefs and the narratives that we say about ourselves came from, who they came from, and why they exist, then, you know, the practical advice about how to be more confident and negotiating better, like, It'll be useful until a certain point because, you know, it has to coincide with being able to be yourself. I'm so glad that I I ended up going to that event because easily I could have been like, okay, yeah, it's 2019, like, you know, politically, like it was uh, still kind of a, a weird time. Like I didn't know if I needed security. I didn't know if I should cancel the event, but I ended up going and I had a really co- great conversation with a group of women, many of which were black women. And I remember, you know, doing a Q&A after our talk and this this one black woman, you know, kept raising her hand. She worked, she was like the chief of staff of like the local government. And she kept saying, you know, I want to do this. And how do I advocate for myself? And Come to find out that same woman, like a year and a half later, two years, became the first black mayor of Lima. And um, she is going to be moderating a talk that I'm doing this year that I'm going back and doing the book. So I just think it's just a cool full circle moment. And you just never know, you know, who you're going to meet and the the change and the difference you'll make if 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 you just decide to stand your ground and be, you know, proud and comfortable with who you are, because at the end of the day is, you know, what I talk about in the book is that sense of otherness is based on somebody else's fear and cognitive dissonance about your own identity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when it comes to the heated climate that you sort of alluded to over the past few years, you know, there has been this sort of weird dichotomy where it's like on one hand you hear negative things like, oh, um, they're taking all our jobs, 
but then at the same time, it's like whoever that they are, you know, and then at the same time, but uh, they're lazy. They don't want to work. I'm like, well, look, it can't be both. <laughs> I mean, either they're taking your jobs or they're lazy. So all these weird tropes that just sort of have no basis at all, really, to the reality, because the reality is undocumented workers contribute a lot of money to our economy. You know, I have friends who, uh, as I read your book, I have one friend in particular who I thought of because she came here when she was pregnant and um, she thought she was going to have her kid here, but she didn't. So she comes back after the child was born and the child's here uh, undocumented. Now the child's 18. So she's sort of living all the residuals of the decision her mother made. And they have this dynamic where the mother's been feeling guilty about that all the time because she only wanted the best for her daughter. And it ended up being a little more difficult than she had plans. And I, and I saw that story repeated sort of in the story you shared, you know, the, the parents have every intention of doing well and, and giving their kids the next, the big opportunities, but they get sort of stuck in the, the, like the, 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 the political aspects of origin, nationality, citizenship. And next thing you know, the children are then undocumented, right? So tell me a little bit about that aspect of to no fault of your own. You were in that situation. Did it make you harbor resentment at sometimes for your parents? Did you have an understanding? How did you navigate that? That is such a good question. And I think you're one of the first people that asked me that. And I think for many of us, I, I speak for myself as well. I had a lot of mixed feelings towards my parents. I had anger. I had resentment. I was grateful. I was, I had shame. I had questions. I had anxiety. Like, there was so much of it. And I think I suffered from a lot of panic attacks when I was younger, a lot of anxiety because it was bottled up emotions. My whole family, like we were in survival mode. Like nobody talked about anything. Nobody explained anything. It was just like, put your head down, do the work and stay afloat. And, you know, my mom is like my best friend and she like is, you know, like the closest person in the world to me, but there was a lot of fights and it was ugly. Like, I think we have this idea of, you know, that we paint on, on certain families where it's like, oh, we're so tight knit and everything's great. And we just, you know, but it was, it was messy and it was complicated. And we, and, but the thing is, I know at the heart of it, my mother wanted a better life for me. And she, I remember like there were times where she would be waitressing and her arthritis would flare up and she'd go from one job to the other. Like, how can you be un, like, how can you be ungrateful with that? And so I think it's, it's a mix of emotions that I, you know, through therapy <laughs> have been starting to, to unravel because and I think that's one of the reasons why I feel so strongly about this book because growing up as the other, there's no one way to talk about our experiences. And there's a lot of duality about what we experience. And some of it we don't understand still. Some of it is good. Some of it is ugly, but it all makes us us. And I think that the part of it is embracing it all and understanding like where things have held us back. And what qualities and experiences are going to propel us forward? Like, for example, one of the advices my, my, my grandma and my mama would always give me is, you know, if you just put your head down and do the work, like someone will notice. 
and you just got to be grateful and you just, you know, show them that you, that you, that you can work. And, you know, that was their advice, but they had never been through the ranks of corporate America. You know, they, they didn't go to higher education, but they were really hard workers. And my mom and my grandma are so smart and they're so strategic. Like, you know, we wouldn't be where we are if it wasn't for them. But I had to understand that I had to follow rules that were not passed down to me. And I had to kind of rewrite those rules because, and I've talked to a lot of Latinas and women of color is that this sense of gratefulness towards our family sacrifice and, you know, the opportunities that we get, it feels fleeting. It feels like if we mess up, if we do one thing wrong, if we ask for too much, if we look like we're ungrateful, it's all going to go away. And it's not just about us. It's about our families and the sacrifices they made. So there's a lot of weight on our shoulders. But again, it's, it's, it's a complicated, but a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful experience. Yeah, and you mentioned that whole notion of like, sort of not wanting to look ungrateful. And that would parlay into a situation where perhaps there's a promotion and you know you're good for it and you want it. But you almost go, well, I mean, I'm already kind of, you know, they already let me in, you know, and I should just be happy with that. And you sort of like dim your own light in a way. And I think what I got from your book as well that I totally related to was sort of this sense of, I guess it's like battling like imposter syndrome. Yeah. Even when you succeed. And I think people in general get that feeling, but it's amplified when you're a person of color, because I think you're bringing forward all this, what my, one of my other guests called ancestral trauma. And I had never heard that term. I was like, wow, it blew my mind. Ruchika Tulshin, who is an amazing inclusion um, and diversity expert who is in my book, you know, we had this conversation and, and I'm, you know, um, hesitant about talking about imposter syndrome in the same way for women of color and white women, because when you have been conditioned as the other and been defined through real actions by higher ups or, you know, experiences where you have been shown that you're different and microaggressed towards like, it's not imposter syndrome. It's like you are experiencing something very real you know, whether it's, you know, by your sexual orientation, the color of your skin, your background. And so we have to be careful how we define that because for a lot of women of color, it's just not fair to say that it's the same thing. And, you know, imposter syndrome, I think is like a buzzy word that gets used around a lot. And at the end of the day, like, we could all be more confident, like, right. We could always, we could always work on that better. But I think for us, it's again, going back to that sense of like, I deserve to be here. I've earned it. I'm worthy of it. And I need to understand, as you mentioned, how my light has been dimmed through the qualifications or the categories or the boxes other people put me in. And so I think we need to be a little bit more fearless, even when we don't feel the courage to do it. And I think every like stage in my career and in my life, I've jumped before I knew what was on the other side. Because when you're the other, like when you feel like you're the other, you have so much to lose, but you have so much to gain. And I think like after writing my book, I'm like, why would I even care about what other people think? And I think, you know, 
obviously there are real repercussions. Like I don't want to make it simplistic, but like when we think about the great resignation and how many women of color have kind of dropped out and done their own things and gone to consulting and, you know, opened up their own LLCs. And by the way, there is, I don't want, I just want to say this very clearly. There has never been a better time in history to be a woman of color. Like I'm telling you, like companies want you like, there's no better time than now. So I think we hold more of the leverage now than ever before and we should embrace it and not just like be preoccupied at getting a seat at the table because a lot of the readers of the other already have a seat at the table, but it's how to use it with full and total power. Right. Yeah. That's a big difference. And I know you also speak about how corporations are in fact, well, they should be, and many of them are making that conscious effort to diversify their workforce. Because at the end of the day, I think now there's enough data to suggest that you are going to be a far more productive company when there's representation and you are allowing more voices. Not just productive, but profitable. Right. Yes, exactly. Like your bottom line, you'll actually make more profit. But what I think is important too, is that people like you who've kind of gone through some of that adversity, you're creating programs. And I think one of the ones that you have, what was it? Accessible Accessible community. community, Yeah. It's a mentorship program. And why I love that is because, you you know, there is a new generation of like young 18 year old girls who may be undocumented, who have the same aspirations as you. And if people who've gone through it, don't create new avenues to help them navigate, they're going to be no better off than you were like, you know, a few years ago when you were starting out. So tell me about how that is helping shape young women of color to have a brighter future despite their documentation? Well, I think representation is so important. And, you know, growing up, I didn't really have that. Like I mentioned, like I was in the lonely corners of the internet trying to find like community boards of other people around the country who were undocumented. Like that was my community. It was like an invisible community. And I think representation is so important. We can't be what we can't see, or at least it's harder. And so that, and when I think about putting my story out there and, you know, cause it's, I'm not comfortable talking about it still. Like I always get like, ugh, when I talk about my own story, right. but there's a vulnerability. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I've realized that it's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about my, my, my own personal story, but it's about the impact of it. And in the same way where like my job, I used to be a booking producer before I was a reporter and my hesitancy of like raising my hand and, you know, pointing out like a story on immigration or bringing in a guest I had never done TV that I felt, you know, strongly about because they were a very sharp woman of color. Like, it's not about me. It's about like everybody else. And, you know, what my, my position of power, you know, opens up for other people. And so I think that that's the other thing. When we realize we have a seat at the table and we don't act and we don't advocate for, you know, our ideas or, you know, what we want to put forth, it's not just us at stake. It's like the whole generation of women like us behind us. And so I think, women today, 18 years old, Gen Z right now. I mean, by the way, they're a little different than millennials. Like, I mean, they're fearless. They're fearless. They're going to literally change the world. And that's amazing. And they have so much resources and tools and people to look up to. But that's why it's so important to like, know, like they're going to get a seat at the table, but it's just like understanding and reckoning with our sense of identity so that we can fully own that seat at the table. And we can, you know, 
God, the gender parity, like that is at the end of the day, the most important thing. You know, I was, um, I, uh, was talking to a friend the other day and, you know, Latinas have always been the lowest on, um, equal pay. Last year, it was like October 21st for Equal Pay Day for Latinas. This year, it's December 7th. So it almost takes a full year of work, a full year of work for Latinas to catch up to white, non-Hispanic men. And so it's about the money too. And it's about our generational wealth. So it's it's a lot. It's a lot that's at stake. Those are wonderful words of wisdom for people of color in general, but of course, especially women. But uh, yeah, we all can relate to that. We've been in many of the situations that you outline in your wonderful book. So Daniela Pierre Bravo, author of The Other, How to Own Your Power at Work. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm so glad you joined me today here on Motivational Mondays. Thank you so much. I really loved our conversation. Thank you for listening to Motivational Mondays presented by the National Society of Leadership and Success and available wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm Corey Andrew Powell, and I'll see you again here next week.